Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, a.k.a. Rabbi. Last time we saw that the king wanted a child, and after involving himself with doctors, he went and demanded that the Jews pray on his behalf, that he would have a child. The Jews, rather than pray for him, they went and sought out a tzaddik, a righteous person, and they told him that he should pray that the king will have kids, and he answered that he doesn't know at all. You have to respect a person who in some ways might be seen as a religious or spiritual leader who is able to admit that they don't know at all. They have no idea. It would certainly be tempting to have an opinion or to imply that one knows about the importance of this situation or that one has power and one has capacity in this situation and to get involved. But we know that this person doesn't want to be involved at all. In fact, this person was a hidden tzaddik. They were not doing anything at all to gain attention for themselves, to imply that they have any kind of power in any way, shape, or form. They prefer to remain anonymous so they can do their work. Rabbi Nachman himself taught a lot and also talked about his own life, about the tension of being known, of being what's called miforsam. And in fact, he would use this word as a pejorative in the negative sense, miforsamim, known people or popular people. This is a different kind of rabbi or a different kind of leader than someone who is able to remain hidden. Someone who is known, they have an image they might have to uphold. They have a reputation that people know about that might require them or might nudge them towards certain kinds of public actions that, in fact, they really don't know, but they feel somehow that they should know or should be involved in some way, so they present as such. And there's a real danger there. So you can see why this person wanted to remain hidden. They wanted to be involved in the way that made the most sense to them without having to take into account people's opinion about what they were doing. They were able to identify for themselves, what is it that I can do, that I can offer, that I can contribute in order to make things go well, in order to contribute to the betterment of the world, in order to contribute to the reconciliation between the human being and between Hashem in these different ways. But suddenly when they're exposed, there's a whole different set of considerations that comes about that they might not want to have had to take into consideration. So this person in the story says he doesn't know at all. He has no idea. This is not a part of what he's been thinking about. It's not been a part of his calculus at all. Who knows what he's been doing? He could have been the hidden tzaddik who is in charge of making sure that children have a good education. He could have been the hidden tzaddik who has been in charge of Shalom Bayit and trying to help partners get along with each other well. He could have been the hidden tzaddik who is in charge of making sure that there's enough parnasa, that there's enough food and enough grain and enough fruit in order to make the world go well. And now suddenly he's being thrust into the spotlight and being told that he's got to pray that the king has a kid. And he says, I don't know. I don't know at all. So the Jews, rather than accepting that, they report on him to the king and they say, um, uh, they tell the king that this person exists and the king sends his guy to bring this tzaddik and he brought him before the king and it says and the king started to speak to him nicely or kindly as it were 
You know that the Jews are in my hand to do with them as I will. Therefore, I'm asking you nicely that you pray that I will have kids. And this tzaddik, this righteous person, promised, promised him that he would have, in this year, he would have a vlad, a child, and he went to his place. Now, it's easy to read the king as simply flexing and exerting power and demanding that this person pray for him and backing that with a threat that if you don't pray for me and what I want, then I could or will hurt you or hurt your people. And that would mean that he doesn't really mean that he's speaking nicely to this righteous person, but in fact, he's using a nice tone of voice perhaps, but it's undergirded by a kind of menacing threat. But let's let's take him at his word. Let's imagine that this is a person who is struggling with power. Let's imagine that this is a person who knows that they can use power in a certain way in order to get what he wants, but he's trying not to. He's trying to open up a capacity in his own life to be able to genuinely be kind and to genuinely ask someone to help him along the way. He doesn't know how to not threaten yet. He doesn't know how to ask for what he wants without some kind of leverage, some kind of threat that's in place. And you could certainly imagine that people have all kinds of ways that they try to use leverage in order to get what, they, what it is that they want. They imply that I'll be angry at you, I'll be disappointed, I'll be sad, my opinion of you will be diminished in whatever way. So I'm asking you, but I'm not just asking you. I'm asking you and threatening you. This is an issue and a struggle that I know many people share. I know that it's something that comes up for me all the time when I have to wonder, how am I going to bring about the result that I want right now? I would like to be able to speak kindly and in a genuine way, sincerely and respectfully and humbly to this person. But if I have any fear that they're not going to respond in the way that I'm hoping that they will respond, I will be very tempted to use power and to use some kind of strength or leverage in order to get what it is that I want. This reminds us of Moshe, Moses, when he was called upon to speak to the rock and to bring forth water to give the people to drink when they were in the wilderness, and he ended up hitting the rock. People talk about it in this this way, that he was being invited to access this water, this life-giving water, in a particular way, and he had concerns about whether or not that would be effectual, and he used what amounted to the power, the power of his staff, in order to bring the water to give it to the people. Rabbi Nachman talks about how Moshe was supposed to use his staff in a certain powerful way, which was to subdue the negative elements of the people that he was speaking to and then use the words that he was supposed to speak in a positive way in order to bring the water. And instead, he ended up using that power and that staff to bring the water. You could see here that there are pretty complicated configurations of power and not power that we're supposed to use in situations. We are not necessarily expected to step into a situation and not use any power that we have or any leverage that we have, but we are called upon to use that power and that leverage in a very precise way. And this is an issue or a challenge that would certainly be up for the week of the Omer that we are in right now, which is the week of Netzach. This is a week embodied, by the way, by Moshe, by Moses. It is a time when we are challenged to learn about how we use power and how we use leverage.
As the word Netzach bears two different definitions or translations, Netzach can mean victory, to overcome someone, to defeat someone, and it can also mean eternity. And we're challenged to figure out the ways that we might need to use our Netzach, our power, our capacity to overcome, but to do so in the service of something greater, to do so in the service of something that is more of an eternal vision. So let's just imagine that the king is being honest here when he says, I'm speaking to you nicely. You know I could use leverage, and I'm trying not to here. I'm trying not to. I'm trying to ask you nicely. But obviously, a threat, even if it's a threat of a threat, feels like a threat, and it's hard not to be affected by that. So he says somehow he promises that the king will have a child, we don't know if he makes it happen or if he sees in the stars or has, has some other way of knowing. But he says that the king will have a child and he goes on his way. And the queen gave birth to a daughter. And this daughter of the queen, notice that she's called the daughter of the queen now, not the daughter of the king. This daughter of the queen was very beautiful. And when she was four years old, she knew all of the wisdoms, or she was capable of conversing in all of the wisdoms. We may be referring to the wisdoms of the medieval world, botany and chemistry and alchemy and the like. And she could also play instruments. She could play instruments. And she knew all the languages. And kings from all over came to see her. And there was great joy for the king. On the surface, this certainly sounds like an amazing young woman. She is beautiful. She can speak in all of the wisdoms. She can play instruments. She speaks all the languages. But I don't know. It sounds like, uh, like beauty pageant talent, as it were sort of public display beauty and amazingness that a person would have. Like talent show material. Okay, so you have a four-year-old who can play the violin. She can also play the accordion. She can also play the tuba. She speaks Portuguese. She speaks Ladino. She speaks Yiddish. She speaks French. She's conversant in botany. Sounds like a pretty educated and capable, talented human being, but what does that mean when you're four years old? This detail of being four years old sticks out to me. Oftentimes, when we talk about the number six in the Jewish tradition, it refers to the four cardinal directions and up and down. And when we talk about four, we're talking about the four cardinal directions without talking about up and down. And those dimensions, up and down, seem to imply depth and height. It's on a different axis than the four cardinal directions. So by saying that this child is four years old and has mastered all the wisdoms and the languages and the instruments, seems to imply a certain amount of skill and capacity, but not depth. She can't necessarily, nor should she be expected to, but she can't necessarily add any kind of depth, any kind of personhood to her instruments, to her languages, and to her wisdoms. This reminds me of 
questions that come up around child prodigy musicians. There's a jazz pianist named Joey Alexander. Now he's 19, but he splashed under the scene when he was 11 years old. And he would play these incredibly sophisticated solos. And people were shocked, actually, at the depth that he was able to bring to the music. People really got a sense that he was bringing soul to the music. But I feel that that actually is an exception to the rule. And generally speaking, we might be able to train a child to play very complicated pieces of music at a very young age. But you would hear the difference if you heard that piece of music played by someone who has life experience versus being played by someone who simply and only has the skills to play it with their hands, so to speak, with the technology, with the skills that they have, but not necessarily, again, with the depth. We're going to see later on that this girl will develop an amazing amount of depth. It's going to be a little while. Right now, she's uh, an attraction, as it were. People come from far and wide to see her. It's an incredible thing, but her story is far from over. And the king's story is far from over. He's thrilled about his daughter until he's not. It was a great joy for the king. Maybe that he had a child and he had satisfied his original requirement that he not have to give his kingdom away to a stranger. Maybe he was happy with all the attention that he was getting. But soon thereafter we find He had a great longing that he will have a son. We shouldn't be critical that this king had a certain goal or a certain ambition, a certain desire, and then it changed over time. That makes an enormous amount of sense. That's how most of us work most of the time. We get a sense of the general direction. We get a sense of something specific that we want to bring into the world. And then down the line, we get a sense of something even more specific that we want to bring into the world. I believe this is a good thing. This is a sign of a person who continues to grow in their ambition, continues to grow in their sense of what it is that they're trying to accomplish. Lest we think that at the young or old age of whatever it is, 24 or 46 or 58 or wherever we are, that we've somehow figured out what it is that we want to bring in the world, and that's the end. Lest we think that there's not any more stages to be explored in the process of refining that particular goal, that particular ambition. The king models for us something very important, that, yeah, he had a sense of what he wanted, and now that's shifted. It's fine-tuned. Now he has a sense that he thought that what he really wanted was just to have a child. And when he had a daughter, he was thrilled because he could at least choose a partner for this daughter of his, the kingdom would stay related to his family, as it were, and then he realized that that wasn't enough. He realized that he wanted it to be a function of a particular configuration of his lineage and what it is that he wants to give over and leave in the world. Lastly, notice a new word that comes up here, nichsaf ma'od, he's longing now. It used to be that he wanted something just because he wanted it. He wanted it because he maybe had this idea. It's not a good idea to leave my kingdom to strangers. I've worked hard to build this kingdom. I don't want it to be taken over by some random uncle or some cabinet member after I leave the world. 
Now he's experiencing some longing. Now he really wants to bring something into the world. For Rabbi Nachman, longing is one of the most essential and core sentiments or feelings or experiences that a person can have. To have longing. To really start a process by feeling the desire for it. By feeling a deep, unsettling experience that I don't have this thing yet and I really want it. I really want to have that. For Rabbi Nachman, many processes, many essential processes begin with that longing. They begin with a sense deep down in the gut, I really want to bring this thing into the world. So the king's vision is deepening, his desire for it, his longing for it is growing, his inner experience around this ambition that he has or this goal or desire that he has is growing. And as he does, as this happens, we'll see that it improves or deepens his ability to bring that thing into the world, the thing that's truly going to have the impact that he wants it to have. But we're not out of the woods yet. There are still old patterns that need to be addressed and need to be developed in order for him to be worthy of bringing this amazing thing into the world. We'll look at that next time.